everybody, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we look back through all of human history and give you examples of utter, almost unexplainable stupidity, so that you can take lessons from the stupidity and never repeat the mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans, and we just seem to be in a constant cycle of making terrible decisions that just reflect what happened 80 or 90 years before. Joining me as ever is my amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, my man, how are you doing? How was your Christmas and New Year as well? Uh, it, it was pretty good. You know, it Excellent. was chill and uh, enjoyable. Yeah. Spent good quality family time. How about you? Oh, man, like I, the Christmas and New Year period was like the first holiday I'd had since May. Like more than like, because you get bank holidays, and you're like, oh, I've got like three day weekend sort of things. Like, and I hadn't had any holidays since May, so I basically, uh, especially when we went back to Anglesey, where like my mother's house is, and there's like loads of space. Like she's got a massive garden, like acres, and like a giant house. And oh man, I slept so much. <laughs> we, we walked on beaches. We kind of ate really delicious food because it's like coastal and stuff. And there's just really good like, farm produce and shit there. And oh my God, I ate the best stuff. And we didn't like, I was trying to help my mother. I was like, oh, we, should we, should we help you lay the table? Do you want us to help you cook? Do you want us to help you wash up? She's like, no, don't fucking move. So, nice. so we had that's a, a real break then. Oh man, it was so good. I felt I came back from that and I felt like a a year younger. I'd like lost weight, like but in a healthy way. And I just felt so good. And then like you come back and you're like, oh shit, there's so oh. much work to do. <laughs> this still exists. <laughs> work still exists. I mean, I'm getting paid for it, but my God. Yeah. So you come back and it's a bit of a, a hard break on that thing. But you know, we're we're enjoying it and we we're arranging like our next holiday and stuff. So, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. Uh yeah. the uh, a, a major thing did kind of happen over the break for oh, yeah. my son. Oh, he got uh his offer and accepted it and wrote his letter of intent and he'll be playing at Southwestern Oregon in the spring of 23. Oh, that's amazing. Right, 20, 20, 20, oh, right. That's amazing. He's there dude. in the fall of 23. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Oh, so that means that because that was your preferred location, right? You guys want to move to Oregon. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. No way. So he, he got what he was looking for. Should be a good thing. He'll get in there and start learning and playing baseball. Nice. <laughs> that's amazing. So it's Southwestern Oregon University. You say. My wife wanted me to ask you because she doesn't know geography that well. She was like, is it near Portland? Because Portland's the only city she knows in Oregon. I was like, might be close to Eugene. Who knows? It is closer to Eugene. Right. Um, it's south of Eugene, north okay. of Medford, and on the coast. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. so you, you'll have coastal living there. Holy yeah. Shit. Like, the stuff that I'm looking at, uh, the houses, like, I'm right. no more than, like, a 15-minute drive to one of the cool beaches. Oh, that's amazing. Oh my god, could you imagine every day? Yeah. Taking taking like a walk on the beach. Oh, that's I, I miss. I'm gonna be that. a much happier person here soon. Fuck yeah, man. Like <laughs> totally. And will you have like space? Like the is the housing level like really good there? Are you gonna have a decent yard and rooms and all that shit in the house? And it really depends on which area of town we're going into. There's sure. some with acreage and oh, there's nice. some that's just you know typical 
suburban yeah. town right sure. next to each other stuff. Yeah. Nothing as tight as where I'm living currently, which feels like but, a giant apartment, basically. Yeah, I don't like that feeling. You know, when you're like in a house, but you're like, it doesn't quite work anymore. And everything's sort of like out of place and stuff. I, I like having space like visual space in a room where you're like oh great there's like four or five uncovered like meters of carpet i feel good now i can see <laughs> like clear floor you know so man yeah, I, you must I, love I, yeah. offices oh man fuck that why do you think i'm remote <laughs> <laughs> i haven't worked in an office for like five years fuck that shit man uh yeah i uh, i'm so happy for you guys that's gonna be such a good move you're gonna be I'm my training's neighbor my God! Oh, he's an hey. Oregonian. There we go. There yeah. you go. Good company. Knock on the door. Take him a fruit basket. See if he can get you a job. That's, I'll that's end good. up like Sheldon on Big Bang Theory with a restraint order from trying to hang out and watch a movie with him. You're waiting for yeah, random people. <laughs> it's me again. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so cool. I'm really pleased for you guys. That's so good. And your son, uh, South. What? So he's going to be. Like doing really well he's going to be studying there's going to be so much he can do that's that's so cool man i'm so yeah, he, pleased for you i'm 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 really excited thank you that's so great, i'm, I'm thanking you for him <laughs> thank you um so yeah we've we've all i'm sure everyone's had like a a really kind of intense start to january it's, it tends to be a bit of a culture shock the first month of the year really because you like you finish christmas you got to get back to it then you realize that fucking Valentine's Day is around the corner. You're like, oh my God, really? That That's already it. shit. I've got to make a date for that. Oh my God. Um, so to take our minds off the stress <laughs> of, of Q1 in 2023, Derek, can you tell us about your idiot for this first episode of season three, please? Okay. So we got another listener request on the Instagram account. Nice. And if you're listening to us right now and you're not following us on Instagram, that's mm. at History's Greatest Idiots. You should go do that right now. Yes, and you I'll should. Wait. I'll wait here. Yep. Um, anyway, I guess you could follow us on Twitter, too, if that's still a thing. Yes, Is absolutely. It? That's still a Elon thing. At Greatest Idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Elon Musk hasn't completely destroyed it. So okay. we're almost Well, there. okay, so this is a listener request, and you, too, can do this if you're following us. And that said, here we go. Uh, the guy I got for you today, uh, the gentleman, if you can call him that, was born on February 13th, right before Valentine's Day, in 1939 at 9 Durrington Park Road in Wimbledon, southwest London. So oh, interesting. Over, over there. Yeah, that's right. Over my side of the pond. His father was a sports journalist, and he was the grandson of the actor-manager Sir Herbert Beerbum. I think is how you say that. And familiar. his uncle, you may have heard of him, Sir Carol Reed. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I, Carol Reed. Oh, my God. He's yes. a very famous director. And so, so by now, if you're following along, you should probably know that I'm covering uh, Mr. Oliver Reed. Ollie Reed? Yes, sir. Oh, my fucking God. I, I got the suggestion. I looked into him because I hadn't heard of him because I'm... Well, I'm kind of dumb in sometimes. <laughs> I couldn't not cover a guy that literally drank himself to death. Yes, he did. On the yeah. set of Gladiator, no less. Right. Which I think many from our our generation, at least here in the States, probably know him best as Proximus in, in Gladiator. Yes. The the Gladiator trainer gruff 
dude. Yeah. And he actually died before he finished filming, right? He did, yeah. yeah. And they had to use one of the very like early uses of like face transplanting, like in technology. So they put his face on someone for his death scene. Uh, and then reused the line that he'd said at a diff earlier in the film. And it was actually really well done. Ridley Scott deserves a lot of praise for that. Like that was a very smart choice without like, you know, kind of completely doing it over the top. But like that one scene, it worked really nicely. And it was way before like the Paul Walker sort of level of uh, ability oh, yeah. to do that sort of stuff. Oh yeah. Like 20 years before Paul Walker passed away. Shit. Everything was still up kind of not right. Yeah, everything but... was still slightly poly <laughs> polygonal, you know, just like, <laughs> like PS2 graphics. So, Ollie Reed, here we go, back to it. Uh, before he got to start working in film, he said he's worked as a bouncer and a boxer and a cab driver, and he did a short stint in the mortuary. And wow. then he got his start working as an extra. You'd think right. he'd have been able to do a little bit better with the connections, his grandparents or his grandfathers being my grandfather and uncle being who they were, but he went into uh, low budget indie horror films to start. And yeah. That's a common way into this, the, the system at that point in the UK. I think it's still kind of a common way into the system for a lot of actors. I mean, Jennifer right. Aniston was in uh, <laughs> uh, was it Leprechaun. Leprechaun. Yeah. George yeah. Clooney was in Troll 2. Yeah. So Johnny horror. Depp was in Nightmare on Elm Street. That he was. He was actually a major player in that one. He's he horror. Yeah. It's everybody's way in, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he did a lot of work for Hammer Films, which is a production company in London that's best known for gothic horror and fantasy yeah. films, although they did kind of dabble into other stuff. And they're the ones that gave him his first leading role in 1961 in The Curse of the Werewolf. Oh, that was wow. Right after, yeah. I believe, he did a stint in an X-rated film back when X-rated films were still shown in theaters. That's right, yeah. In the um, UK, it was quite pervasive, actually, at one point in time. You have to be really careful. Well, and it's it's one of his nude scenes was actually one of the first full frontal mainstream uh, scenes. That's we'll right. Get to There's that a very too. funny story about that. We'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> so throughout the 60s, uh, he did really well he was in a whole bunch mm -hmm. of movies in 64 uh he was in an accident that he thought was going to end his career he was at the crazy elephant nightclub in uh look square is that how you say that leicester leicester square there we go yeah yeah i can't speak english english i can only <laughs> speak american english <laughs> so he's at that bar he gets into a dispute with a couple of guys uh that ended up with him just making a dismissive remark as you do and walking away good they waited until he went to the toilet and followed him in there and attacked him with broken bottles yet mm. he, he ended up receiving 63 stitches on one side of his face and he totally thought like dude this is going to be permanent scarring we're going to mm -hmm. be it's done and maybe that helped him to to drink as well mm. um but he ended up not scarred too bad and became an even bigger star when oh, yeah. he played Bill Sykes in Oliver. Oh my and, God, he was so good in that. And that was, you know, uh, Carol Reed's screen yes. version of the stage musical. So there goes his uncle actually hooking him up and him doing a good job at his job. And yeah, um, his he, performance as Bill Sykes, he, he was like genuinely psychotic. He was really intimidating in that role. Yes. And, and he, dude, he played a really good, psychotic, intimidating oh, bad yeah. guy. 
so good. Um, it's it's weird though because his popularity in the '60s grew so much that in '69, when Sean Connery took off from the Bond film, they were actually going to use Ollie Reed to replace mm. him, That's but right. he turned it and down for some reason. Yeah, I feel like Ollie Reed is kind of like because there are a lot of people talking about who's going to be the next James Bond, and a lot of people like say Tom Hardy. And I feel like Tom Hardy is very much a modern day version of Oliver Reed, the guy who's in the Spawn films and who's in Bronson oh. and shit like that. Is he, he's is he a very Oliver Reed. He's he's a big drinker. Shit. Okay, <laughs> or he was. Dude, anyway. I I had no idea that uh, dude partied that hard. But it, oh yeah. Um. So yeah, he doesn't do the Bond film, and, and that ends, mm. ends up getting played by uh, George Lazenberry, who was the shortest lived Bond of all time. Yeah, and he was replaced by the duty replaced. That's right. George Lazenby was um, a notorious asshole, and um, so much so that he um, he pissed off Dame. Oh, who is who is like? Because it, it's my mother's favorite Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Because he gets married. James Bond gets married in that film, and then the uh, wife, his wife, is killed by oh, Blofeld and stuff. And it's like it's really emotional. Like at the time, it really affected people. It had Louis Armstrong singing, "We have all." Really? The time in the world, yeah, and like George Lazenby on set because they had really good chemistry, but on set he annoyed everyone to the <laughs> point where the actress, who's a dame and a really famous actress, she was in Game of Thrones recently. Um, she played like the elderly Tyrell matriarch. Oh, okay. See, I'm sitting um, here looking and trying to think and remember, like, I've seen a James Bond movie, and there's a secret fact I've never seen a James Bond movie. Holy shit, dude. You, Never there's so it. many good ones. Out of the 26, there's like 10 good ones. So <laughs> I'll have, <laughs> have to have you give list. me a list. Yeah, I'll give you a list. Um, but like, yeah, so she's on set with him. She's trying to be a love interest and stuff. And she went on to be in the original Avengers, like the kind of the British TV okay. show thing. Um, and she hated him so much because he was a massive bigot and like a horrible racist scumbag and sexist that she would chew three or four cloves of garlic raw and then do a romantic scene with him just to fuck up his breath that's, that's how much awesome. he hated him also george lazenby after he made the film he, he got a lot of attention he got a lot of modeling contracts and stuff went on to say that oh you know hitler he was all right wasn't he and everyone's like oh for fuck's sake george so man that, that but yeah it was the old kanye west <laughs> <laughs> whoops so close i love hitler so oh man oh, that, don't take that out of context and make a no, gif please, out of don't, that, please don't clip that please don't clip. <laughs> uh but yeah sorry um, so so yeah george lazenby massive failure i think oliver reed would have been a brilliant bond but he would have been very because oliver reed is like a hardcore kind of thuggish looking guy so would have been like, a different kind of bond would have been a very hard and bond yeah that's kind of like i, I think maybe made more of a of a brute thuggish villain guy because of the fight in the crazy elephant for sure but, yeah um his drinking really started to kick, kick off around that time too so okay. that would have been an interesting sort of uh bond mm. i mean he, he honestly he probably would have been a better bond villain than james himself i think i, I feel like he would have like if you'd done like kind of Connery towards the end of his run as George uh, as James Bond, and then like maybe had Oliver Reed, like a younger Oliver Reed, come in as like a a powerful, intelligent, younger guy as like a serious threat to Bond. I think that would have been a brilliant Bond villain. Hmm. See, maybe there's still. Well, I guess we'd we'd have to yeah. find we do we do Tom Hardy. Tim, yeah, 
Tom mm-hmm. Hardy would be a good Bond villain as well. Shit. Yeah. Any, works. yeah. Anyway, so no, dreamcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so Oliver Reed then uh, in the 70s, right after turning that down, made a series of action-oriented films, including one of his biggest roles as Athos in Three Musketeers. And this is one of my favorite t- film series of all time. The Three Musketeers? The Dick Lester Three Musketeer films. And The are... Four Musketeers? The, and the four musketeers and then the one they did like 20 years later um which was like the return of the musketeers or the musketeers okay. return the those first two musketeer films are nearly perfect cinema every frame looks like a, a renaissance painting and like the the fighting in it right because you think about like swashbuckling like oh ping 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 they beat <laughs> the shit out of each other it's not like that like errol flynn fighting they fight dirty they throw buckets at each other he's like smacking people in the face with food and like sticks and stuff and occasionally the sword comes out it's a full-on brawl with like all of these british actors and stuff um interestingly sorry so we were before this broadcast we were talking about a film called men which stars rory kinnear um who is a British actor? He's in that film. It's a horror film. It's really good. I'd suggest you watch it. Watch it if you've got a strong stomach. Rory Kinnear is the son of a, an actor called Greg Kinnear. Not Greg Kinnear. Sorry. Um, no, that's the other actor. Anyway, there was another Kinnear, British actor, called Kinnear. I can't remember his name now. Anyway, he was in the Three Musketeer films. He was like the servant to Michael York's main character, D'Artagnan. He was like the bumbling servant who would like fall downstairs and like a comic relief kind of character. Oh, okay. When they were making the return of the Musketeers film, he did a stunt where he was riding on the back of a horse and like the horse saddles like, oh, 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 it's leaning over to the side. (laughs) And he like he's supposed to like bounce off a tree and like, oh, come on, get up. We've got stuff to do. He did that stunt himself and it killed him instantly. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they had to do what happened later on in Oliver Reed's life. They had to replace him with like they'd have a shot like looking up at the guy's feet running in and someone doing an impression of his voice and then his feet running out again. It's like, oh my God. So sorry, just a connection between what we're talking about before the podcast and what we're talking about now. The, the actor I was telling you about in men, his father died on the set of a film doing a stunt with Ollie Reed, with Oliver Reed, massive yeah. connection. Holy yes. shit. So yeah. Um, well, that's, I wonder if it'd be considered a cursed film then. Cause then I would I'd probably, yeah. Later. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the 70s saw him making uh, several TV appearances as well uh, mm-hmm. on shows like The Saint and The Professionals yes. and also some sitcoms. Uh, yeah. I, I haven't seen any of that. I don't I've seen that. The They've Saint. Been before my time. The Saint's great as well. Yeah, like early Saint is fantastic. And somewhere around this time, he, he met uh, director and writer Michael Winner, yeah. who he became really, really good friends with. And they worked together a lot, almost immediately. Yeah. Um, they did a, fo- a film called Hellboat, which yes. actually allowed Oliver Reed to co-write with with Winner. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 weird because the bottle. My cat is trying to open the door right now. <laughs> it's okay. You can let the, door, you the cat in. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> the cat wants to come in. The cat can join us. It's funny. Uh, so because of the scar and Mm. because he was generally uh actually an incredibly shy man yeah he he used alcohol to calm his nerves Mm -hmm. so when he's sober he's quiet and off to the side Mm. but when he's drinking he's really cool 
but only to yeah. a point because after dark, his friends would say he was a total nightmare and nobody wanted really? to, to hang out with him. And he That's started to get a, yeah, he got a, a reputation of a bit of a hellraiser that oh, kind of took over his acting career. And yeah. he, he's almost more famous for his drinking and partying than mm -hmm. some of his, his films. But yeah. Um, there was a big he, crowd of like British actors. Sorry, sorry to keep interrupting. Go ahead. There was a big crowd of British actors who were known like for getting absolutely fucking hammered and either fighting or like uh just just getting so drunk that they could barely function. Oliver Reed was one of them. The other one was and I've forgotten his name, he's Lawrence of Arabia in the legendary Lawrence of Arabia film. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Um and the third one, Irish actor who was the first ever Dumbledore in the Harry Potter films. Uh, oh, which Richard Burton. Yeah. No, no, not Richard Burton. This is, uh, Richard Burton died quite a bit before that. But no, they're like Richard something. Uh, his son's an actor now who's in a bunch of stuff. Anyway, those three would go out and get absolutely hammered. And there's a story of um, oh, the guy who played Lawrence of Arabia and... Uh, the guy who played Dumbledore and another friend of theirs went out, got drunk, and they they didn't want to stop drinking, so they went to a bar close to uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I'll just call them the character names. Uh, <laughs> they went to a bar close to his house to continue drinking, and they had like one drink, and the the bar was like, "No, I can't serve you anymore. You are too drunk." And they're like, "Well, son, we get drunk all the time. We'll tell you when we're too drunk." And it's like, "No, no, no, I really can't do this." And they were so annoyed that they couldn't carry on drinking that they um. They found the number for the owner of the bar and they bought the bar so they could carry on drinking. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a fucking power move right there. It's Tony Stark level. Like, I bought the club. I bought this. Or Batman. Or <laughs> they bought well, the bar so they could carry on getting pissed. That's the thing, too, is 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 you're saying he was with the three actors, but then he was also friends with Keith Moon from The Who. Oh, yes. And that's right. McQueen. He was devastated when Keith Moon died. And, and he was friends with Richard Burton. And they yes, were regular was. drinking buddies for a minute. And then Elizabeth mm. Taylor, of all people, banned Oliver Reed from hanging out with, with her husband, Richard Burton, <laughs> for being a bad influence. Um, I'm sure. So eh, it's anyway, uh, I, I lost so. my place here. Where no, I'm I go? sorry. That's, I just find that hilarious that Oliver Reed was a bad influence on Richard Burton, who yes, was sir. always drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's I I don't know. I feel like that was a thing in the '60s for uh, leading men and actors to just always be drunk. That they were they were always half cut. Like there were stories of I I can't remember the British Noel Coward, a British actor director, like a, also secret spy during the war. Like he was a trained spy who was wow. yeah. Like, there was a he was part of the League of Gentlemen uh, of ungentlemanly warfare with like Christopher Lee, who was his his. Uh, well, friend, but also uh, Ian Fleming and a bunch of like famous people who were like secret spies oh, because man. they would spy on like yeah they were like Christopher Lee killed like loads of Nazis. It's really scary. But um, yeah, so <laughs> no, it's no coward for the rest of his life. If he wanted to get any work done and not be bothered because he was gay, he was like flamboyantly gay, and it was obvious at the time. But he was gay twenty years before it was legalized in the oh. UK. Or sorry, decriminalized because you know there was still shit going on. So um, he used to basically drink slowly through the day, and he had various concoctions to stop him from getting like actually completely drunk. He was always just like a little bit tipsy. So he essentially drank continuously for the rest of his life from the 1940s onwards. 
Like oh, he wow. would always have a drink around him. So yeah. Huh. Well, and that's what a lot of them did. They just sort of continuously drank. Oliver kind of did that. I mean, he he actually, I guess, he used to show up to uh, premieres with like a bottle of vodka <laughs> that he would drink before the end of the the, par- of the premiere. That's really so, bad. Um, and he drank a lot too, and we'll yeah, get into did. that in a minute. Mm. And what what else would you expect from a guy that uh, is quoted as saying, "My idea of a good time is to get a few friends together and get as drunk as we possibly can." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's Very kind simple. of yeah, that's kind of the way he he was. He's got yeah. tons of stories about uh, the epicness of his drinking. Like oh, yeah. according to some, during his stag weekend before he married uh, this woman named Josephine, that we'll talk about here in a minute, mm-hmm. he's reported to have uh, drunk a hundred pints of beer. <laughs> yeah, but he says that's not true. He says that actually happened during an arm wrestling competition. So. <laughs> yeah i could see Which, how those two could get mixed up he was actually barred from a lot of bars for roughhousing and performing yeah. you know strengths uh feats of strength he calls right. called them yeah um, and like he he had this proclivity for like kind of getting trying to egg people on to get in fights like that was one of his notorious thing as well like he would try and start fights in a very subtle way use it because he was very like intelligent and he had a, a great like command of the english language and he would deliberately demean people just so that he was like i'm gonna annoy the fuck out of this guy you know that's so. that's kind of how he ended up getting uh jumped in the bathroom yeah. is that he just like he snubbed just him and walked away like yeah. a dick so <laughs> exactly yeah um okay so back to his epic epic drinking he he yeah. once threw a party at one of his mansions where he required the guests to consume an entire bottle of port and then stay in a room for 20 minutes without throwing up oh just God. to be allowed to party with him that night. That's crazy. That's too much. Oh, a yeah. Pool, I'm surprised that more people didn't die. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, this is one where I'm surprised nobody died. Reed and 36 rugby players went through 60 gallons of beer, 32 oh, bottles of scotch, 17 bottles of gin, four crates of wine, and a bottle of baby camp. Baby sham. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh my God. That's disgusting. That's, that's like a year's worth of alcohol for a frat house. Yeah. And I mean, there were 36 of them, but Jesus. One night. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I I think there's like, there's something about, because Oliver Reed was built like a rugby player as well. So like, there's something about rugby players there. They're all like, they're about six foot, but they're all like wide and broad and like stocky, but not like they're kind of, sort of fat but not fat fat you know right. so they're like, like power lifters pa- like power lifters perfect example only like taller because power lifters generally like like under five foot seven and stuff rugby players are sort of built the way they train and the way they are they're sort of built for drinking like absorbing lots and lots and lots and lots of alcohol just because of the makeup of their body like they're quite athletic and powerful but they're not like fat so they're not going to have like a massive heart attack or anything like that so right yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it makes sense why he was drinking with rugby players, but it actually didn't stop with strangers and friends. Uh, When his son turned 12, Oliver took him to the pub for a pint. And uh, then he, in his biography, stated that he was immensely proud when the boy downed seven pints. So fuck me. Sons in the family. Yeah, that's that's not good. Like you can argue the whole rite of passage thing. That's like a bonding exercise and stuff. I get it. Like, because it's legal in the uk 
to drink in a pub if you're 17 with food, but 12, like you must have found a really fucking dodgy pub. But I get like you want to explain to your son what alcohol is, maybe, but like seven pints for a 12 year old, like that's bad. Well, and he promoted it as he's proud of him. So, I mean, that just sets you on a path. But um, I mean, a, a typical lunch with him, his wife, and his friends uh, would have a bar tab that had like gin and tonics, like eight of them, and bottles and bottles of wine and all kinds of brandy. That's um, crazy. So it, it wasn't um, like uncommon for him to no. drink a lot and celebrate it. So, I mean, I guess the kid would have gotten it from that anyway. Mm. Yeah. If, he, um, if the kid was around that, he would have drunk eventually anyway. So, yeah, exactly. But yeah. Uh, remember when I said that he, he carried around a bottle of vodka to premieres and drank it before the end? Yeah. Um, right before he did his his famous nude scene with the full frontal in Women in Love, that's right. He drank an entire bottle of vodka in a really short period of time to prepare and wow. get his nerves ready to do that. I, I I get why he did that. Drank, you know, calm yourself down. You've got to do a major scene and stuff like that makes sense. But drinking a bottle of vodka just before you're about to get naked on camera that is not good for the specific region that people will be talking about. <laughs> and I I, rem I don't know how true this is because I heard a story about this scene. It may or may not be included in your research that when he saw his co-star in that scene, he was like, oh, that guy's quite well endowed. I Give me a minute. And he like wandered off set and just like, come on. <laughs> I didn't get into that. He yeah, fluffed I, himself. He, he fluffed himself. And, and we're not talking like, he just knocked one out like he was like oh god i stop you look like a bird's nest what the fuck is wrong with you like he, <laughs> he was just like just gently kind of getting himself to normal size which as men we know if it's cold or you've drunk a lot and stuff or you're nervous it, has it can be less than impressive yeah it can be disturbing especially back in them when they did not trim or manage oh, yeah Shit, or... you could lose it in that mess oh yeah it'd be like oh my god wait let me pull the pull back the leaves yeah no it, so yeah he did that in that scene and that scene is like you say it is a turning point it's really kind of an important moment in cinema because nudity with women is way more common than nudity yes. for men unless maybe you're watching game of thrones but even then like female nudity outweighs men and i do feel it's unfair like if you've got a female co-star who's like having to get her breasts out or or go full frontal like Rachel Vice or or someone like that, the men should be doing that as well. There should, there should be more Michael Fassbenders in this world. I mean, I'm sure women would love it if there were more Michael Fassbenders in this world. But you know, the male nudity should be more, yes. really big on equal frontal nudity. That's true. I, I think uh, no. I just think if if you're gonna do nudity, it has to be equal. And this isn't like me advocating for nudity in films. I I think it's completely unnecessary most of the time. But if yeah. you're gonna do it, don't just force women to become sex objects. Like, do it for everyone. Everyone equally part of the process. So yes, yeah. but I think ev everyone equally doesn't want to see that though. For the most part, no. I would say no, so. nobody wants to see that. Really those. awkward. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> but also like. Uh, that scene is is incredibly important because Oliver Reed was, despite being very much a man of his age, it's an incredibly homoerotic scene. It's just two naked, oiled up men, full on wrestling, like yeah. Greco-Roman shit. And I think that's a really important moment in cinema and not enough people have heard of it. Well, people here have now heard of it. It's Women in Love and you can go watch that somewhere. And uh, Yeah, it's a great film. We're talking about. 
Yeah. I'm I'll have to go watch it. I yeah. I am really um not like uh what do you call it? Not like Renaissance man, but no, I get it. Yeah. I just I, I, I haven't done like, a lot of things. Well, <laughs> I think it's just like it's something a lot of the time it's like stuff you happen upon. I'm very lucky to have happened upon a lot of shit in my life, good and bad. And like there 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 were a bunch of films that I've just sort of happened upon watching and I'm like really glad I saw that. I have less like, oh god, that was two hours of my life. I'm never getting back. I have less moments like that than I do of oh shit, I just saw a film that I would never have seen before. And like, like we were talking about Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer before this, which was Michael Rooker's breakout role. It was banned in the UK for years because it's a, a film about a serial killer and it does kind of romanticize that back in the well, early 80s. I was going to so, say, those are huge now. Look at that Dahmer flick. Everybody, I know, I know. It would have done big business now. But um, yeah, like I've happened upon these films and I, I feel in and, and cultural touchdowns and I feel enriched because I've seen them. So if you do get a chance to see things like if you want like a, a funny laugh of a really interesting action film, uh, Three Musketeers is a good one. Oliver Reed does some really good dramatic performances in that. Women in Love is also really good. This guy had real acting chops. I mean, I know he was nominated for like a couple of Oscars, especially like his last role in Gladiator. I think he was nominated yeah. for. But yeah. yeah, he was a good actor, so I recommend watching Women in Love. It's good. And it's kind of a shame that uh, his legacy became more about his drinking. And, you know, here I am perpetuating it. But Well, yeah, I mean, I mean he, he, was, he was okay with it. He summed up his own life as uh, shafting girlies and downing sherbies, whatever that means. <laughs> <That's really fucking laughs> um, and he, he used to like to party so much, and one mm. of his favorite party tricks was to drink and then pull out his penis. Yep. Which is tattooed with a cock. But, That's well, right. really eagle's talons, but you know, it would have been funny if it had a cock on his cock. <laughs> it would have been hilarious. To yeah. He was um, the he was the British Ric Flair. He's basically just whipping it out whenever he gets a chance. It's crazy. Kinda. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> does he say that when he whips it out? <laughs> he, he, he does. He's famous for um like on buses or planes just wearing his robe and then nothing else underneath it and just flashing everyone, everyone around him and going, woo! It's but not his good. isn't tattooed, right? No, no. Well, See, Oliver Reed's tattooed. was tattooed and it almost got him killed. Oh shit, did it go septic? Well, no. What happened was he was down in the, the Caribbean and oh. partying and whipping it out as he did. And some of the locals saw it and saw the, the tattoo and actually thought it was a voodoo symbol no <laughs> and he had to like make haste out of the, the place but he he had controversy all around him oh, yeah. uh around that time he got into fights uh mm. one time he stripped naked at a hotel bar and jumped into a large tank of goldfish and oh, played around in there until the police arrived and then he told him you can't touch me i'm the fourth musketeer and <laughs> you know he um, wasn't. He was Athos. He was the second Musketeer. <laughs> fourth was D'Artagnan. Man, he was so drunk he forgot who he was. Exactly. Yeah. Well, as his career progressed, though, his appearances kind of became more focused on his drinking feats. Yeah. And um, on, let's see, was it the 26th of September, 1975, while Reed was being interviewed by Johnny Carson, <sighs> Shelley Winters got so mad at his derogatory comments that she uh, about 
feminist and women's liberation mm-hmm. that she poured a cup of whiskey over his head on camera. Yeah. Uh, question I have there is why was Shelly Winter drinking whiskey on the Johnny Carson show? Yeah. In the first place. <laughs> is that what they put in those coffee cups? I think sometimes. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, in 1980, he was involved in a little bit of a scandal when he was found to be dating a 16 year old girl. Mm-hmm. That is Josephine. And he was 42 at the time. So this fuck uh, me. Yeah, it's it's a little weird. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's legal in the UK. Like the legal age of consent is sixteen, and has been for I think like sixty years or something. But that, if he was doing that now, he wouldn't. He would immediately be ostracized from society. I swear <laughs> to God. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's why I guess it would be. I was going to say he could almost be the grandparent, but no, that's not right. No, definitely the parent though. Yeah. Okay. Um, in October of eighty-one, he got arrested in Vermont, where he was disturbing the peace and drunk and he pled no contest and was fined. Okay. And then in 1985, we get a little good news kind of, uh, cause when Josephine turned 20 years old, her and Reed got married and they stayed married until he died. So, Oh, there's that. Okay. So it was a long-term commitment. Well, I mean, good, good for him. Like he found his person probably too young, but he found his person. And if it provided him, a level of stability, even if it didn't stop him from drinking, that's something at least. I'm, yeah, I'm glad. It wasn't so much her that helped him stop drinking, but we'll get to what stopped mm. him for a minute. Uh, yeah. In 87, he was on the David Letterman show mm-hmm. and drinking, yeah. and they had to cut to a commercial and he started getting belligerent because mm. David Letterman was asking him too many questions about his drinking and his partying, and it would really piss him off. Mm. And he, he pointed out they talked about it before and he like bailed out of the show and around this time by like december of 87 he's like overweight and kind Mm. of puffy suffering from gout because he's drinking too Too much much. and like killing himself and Mm. he he got pretty ill with some kidney problems because Mm. of the alcoholism around the same time and ended up quitting drinking for over a year holy shit which, which is huge that's a, but, a long time for an alcoholic. It uh, is. I mean, it's. I mean, three months is a long time. I think for an alcoholic, sometimes. I think so. Yeah. Shit, a day or two, for some. <laughs> but uh, during the filming of Cutthroat Island in '95, oh, uh, he was cast in a cameo role as. Um, I can't even say it. More, Mordecai Fingers. Is that right? That's that's that sounds about right. That film was a fucking disaster. Cutthroat Island. I think that nearly bankrupted a studio. Well, he he got uh, like kicked off of it because he he showed up super uh, intoxicated. Yeah, he got into a bar fight earlier on in the filming, and then he attempted to expose himself to Gina Davis. So he got replaced by George Marcel. Right, and um, near the end of his life. Uh, he was doing these television series specifically for his drinking, like the word uh, put bottles yeah. of vodka in his dressing room so he could get uh, secretly film him getting drunk. Yeah. The word uh, was like a kind of counterculture show that was deliberately provocative on channel four uh, featured Kurt Cobain famously on television saying that Courtney Love is the best fuck in the world um, <laughs> on live television. There was also a female punk band they had live on channel four at like nine ten o'clock at night and the bassist just pulled her pants down and just took a shit oh wow that's super punk 
That was really pog. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So the word was an amazing show, but they they were they were deliberately provocative. I know that they 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 did make a stand. There was they had a reggae artist on who was being really homophobic, and the presenter went, "Oh fuck you! I'm not going to talk to you anymore." And just turned around. <laughs> And everyone started clapping in the studio. They're like, yeah, that's really good. But he was like, I could have been killed. Like, that guy was armed when he showed up to the studio. Oh, shit. So, yeah, but um, getting Oliver, Lee, Oliver Reed deliberately drunk because it's funny television, that's not good. I know he'd done it. He'd, he'd been on the Wogan show like a few years earlier, which was like our version of Letterman, I guess, because Terry Wogan was like a, a British institution, even though he was Irish. Okay. Um, and they'd asked Oliver Reed on in the hope that he wouldn't be too drunk. And he showed up so drunk that he performed with the, the band. And everyone was like, oh, Oliver Reed's going to put on a performance. But it was literally just him going. <laughs> <laughs> and like making no sense. And they're like, oh, this is the show we're getting. OK, Ollie, thanks for that. Um, if you can watch uh, Oliver Reed Wogan, it's it's kind of depressing, actually. But yeah, well, and that's kind of what was happening um before he got a, another opportunity with Gladiator is that he was going on to these shows and he was drunk and being a stooge kind of. Yeah. He says that like on the word, he knew about the secret cameras and, and mm. that uh, he was just acting drunk to, you Talk know, with them. Yeah. Get, well, to get, yeah, the, the ratings and what whatnot. They want. Yeah. But he got kicked off uh, a program called After Dark when he showed up actually drunk and tried to kiss a feminist writer, Kate Millett, yeah. and, and uttered a phrase, give us a kiss, big tits, which is... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I'm doing that. That's sexual assault, Ollie. But I mean, what do you expect from a dude who said his ideal woman is a mute nymphomaniac whose father owns a pup? <sighs> I mean, that's terrible. Uh, I mean, it's... His it's, quotes are insane. They are genuinely... Like, and at the time, you know culture wise they're like oh look at him dating 16 year olds and getting drunk and getting into bar fights he's such boys will be boys like no he's got really <laughs> significant problems there i mean i've laughed at a lot of this stuff but it's really depressing this is a man with incredible talent and who had he been allowed to kind of open up about his shyness and maybe some of the stuff going on in his life naturally without needing alcohol he probably would have been with us for a lot longer than he was and yeah, now we come to the saddest part of this entire mm. story. We're getting to the end here. Um, and it's it's really shitty uh, mm. when you learn about how it, it really went down from people that were there. Uh, Reed died of a heart attack during a break from filming on Gladiator in Malta on yep. the afternoon of May 2nd, 1999. And according to witnesses, he drank eight pints of, pints of German lager, did a dozen shots of rum, uh, took down a half a bottle of whiskey and a few shots of Hennessy cognac in a, a drinking match against some sailors that were on shore leave from the HMS Cumberland at the pub there. The the bar he... bill, yeah, it was like four hundred and fifty pounds. It was like nine hundred and fifty uh, bucks back then in ninety nine, which is a lot. I mean, you know, translate that to this day, you're talking thousands of dollars as a bar tab. That's fucking stupid. Why does he keep finding these people? Like, oh, I found some rugby players. I found some sailors. Oh, look, I found the psychopath over here. He's finding these people to get drunk with, and they are really, really not the people you want to drink with. But here's oh, the thing, man. though: he he beat all five of them oh, yeah. uh, at arm wrestling and drinking, oh, and shit. then he suddenly collapsed 
um, hmm. having a heart attack, and he died en route to the hospital. He was 61 years old. Jesus. And, and he, you watch, you watch Gladiator. He does not look 61. No. He looks like 80. Yeah. He's old as grizzled. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. The, the saddest thing, though, is that one of the actors on the show uh, that worked with him said that all he hadn't had a drink in months before the filming started. And even though everybody said he went out the way he wanted to, a lot of people don't think that was true. They think it was tragic and mm-hmm. that he was just at the bar for lunch and was mm-hmm. pressured into drinking in, in the competition. And he shouldn't have done it, but he did. Mm-hmm. And he, he actually made promises to Ridley Scott prior to filming in order to get the part that he wouldn't drink during production and right. did really good at only drinking on weekends and then went months without drinking at all until he went ham and uh, yeah. died, literally that, drank himself to death. That's so tragic. And it, it, it reminds me an awful lot of like similar situations where you have someone who has like an addiction for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, and then they get clean for like almost as long sometimes, and then they fall off the wagon, and the first time they, they're dead. You know, yeah. I, Philip Seymour Hoffman comes to mind, who was like, he did heroin for quite a while. And he was clean for 20 years. And then he just does heroin again for the first time and it kills him. Um, well, you imagine you do it the same way you would do it before. And uh, yep. you ain't got and quite the tolerance. No, exactly. I mean, I know uh, one of the famous examples in wrestling was Eddie Guerrero, who somehow lived to be the age he did, despite having like a bunch of ODs and like a car accident that should have killed him, but and then should have ended his career. But he carried on wrestling. And he eventually got fired, got clean, and had like this amazing comeback story in wrestling, which is the stuff of legend. And then years later, he like a, a couple of years later, he died because of the years of stress and strain he put in his body. He didn't even relapse. He was he was like forty, and he had a massive fucking coronary because he'd done drugs and alcohol like constantly for years and he was a small dude he was like five foot six so his body couldn't take that shit whereas all the really bit of a chunkier guy traded the end of the years of his life he uh what is that put put the end of the years on the front and backloaded it and ended it early exactly it's it's so sad the oliver reed thing as well because i even as great as he was imagine how successful he would have been had he not been quite the hellraiser he had been like i feel like we, we look at like some great british actors who have like not only broken hollywood but established themselves as like genuine icons like sean connery like anthony hopkins and like all these like elder states people like dame judy dench and like all of these like really famous british actors i feel like oliver reed had the acting pedigree to keep up with any of them he was like he had a marlon brando quality to him in terms of his presence and if he just stayed like somewhat normal, he'd have been huge. But he couldn't. That's so yeah. sad. It's a bummer. Yeah. But what what do you think? Is he an idiot? What kind of score does he get? I feel like he is for squandering his talent, really. Yeah. And there, there does have to be an element of that with some of the people that we cover because we can talk about like, oh, troubled geniuses. And it's 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 such a cliche at this point. Like we talk about Maradona, who like had he not been the cokehead and the lunatic that he was he probably would have been there's a lot of people say oh he's better than Pele like he's not because Pele was uh he he was more successful and he never had the issues that Maradona had so immediately for me like you're more successful 
and you're not a fucking Hellraiser, you're probably a better, <laughs> better person in terms of status. So I feel like Oliver Reed, because of, like I said, like Anthony Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins was an alcoholic for like 25 yeah. years. And, and you know, he grew up in a part of Wales where, like, yeah, I mean, everyone's an alcoholic there. It's just mining or death, really. So, like, I, I understand. He kicked it, and he went on to win two Oscars and, like, become one of the most respected actors. And now he's so good at his craft that he can walk onto any film set, even in his 80s, and go, I'm giving you three takes. If you don't get it in three takes, I'm not doing anymore. Damn. So, yeah, Holler. he only does three takes. <laughs> you imagine him working with David Fincher, who does, like, 150 fucking takes per scene. <laughs> Uh, it's like no david i'm a very good actor i can get it in three if you can't that's your problem um so Seems yeah I feel, yeah i feel feel like oliver reed had he survived and maybe done a little bit more in gladiator and made it to the oscars and was clean i feel like he would have stood a very good chance of winning best supporting actor that year because that was a huge film gladiator it's hard to understand like for people who weren't there it's hard to understate the cultural impact that film had at the time it was everywhere it made like two different actors careers in joaquin phoenix and russell crowe you know they yes. established themselves on that film and uh um yeah oliver reed and and his old his old uh, we mentioned the the first um dumbledore he was on that film as well he played the the emperor's father uh who's killed off his name richard's oh it's gonna drive me mad now all i can anyway. think is branson that's I know, not yeah. close to right yeah, <laughs> so the, the, both drinking buddies were on that film and they were both clean. That's kind of amazing. So I feel like for squandering the talent and the opportunity he had, because not only could he have been like a cornerstone of British cinema had he behaved himself, but he would also have been in major roles right up until the day he died. I feel like Oliver Reed has to get like an 81. Oh, that's um, better than I was thinking. Yeah, he that. didn't. He, he didn't kill anyone, but like, the fact that he threw away his career, which he did, he'd have been a multimillionaire. He'd have been so influential. He could have helped other young actors. He could have done so many cool parts. The fact that he did that and some of the shit he got up to when he was like drunk, getting his son drunk, like kind of the abuse he was throwing at people, the the animosity towards women, that yeah. shit is not good. And he, you can blame alcohol all you want, but there comes a certain point in time when you're using your addiction to allow you to do terrible things as an excuse. Yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah, not good. Right. So, I think 81's solid. I, I, I think want so. to, yeah, I want to like Oliver Reed more than I think he probably deserves, unfortunately. <laughs> but that's that's the thing, you know, we can talk about frustrated geniuses all you want, but alcoholism is so bad. It's it really bad. is. And mm. I, f I feel like that's kind of a, a really close to home one for me mm. uh, because. I drank a lot, really heavy, mm. especially like in my radio, my radio days, getting mm. uh, removed from a venue while I was working for a radio station because I was pounding, you know, crowning cokes and oh, making fun of the bouncers. You know, mm. you do dumb yeah, shit when you drink, and <laughs> don't mess up, up the bouncers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is so sad and. Addiction is like so we're still not quite there with our understanding of addiction. It is um, uh, an illness that is an ongoing thing. That this idea, so people still think that oh, you've beaten your addiction. You never really beat an addiction. You just learn to manage it really, really well. It's a bit like grief. Like you never truly, if you have a major loss in your life, a major grieving moment, you never really get over that grief. You just learn to manage it better on a day to day basis. 
And it's the same with any addiction, whether it's alcohol, drugs, uh, gambling, sex, you know, whatever it might be. You just have to learn to live with it the best you can and, and not let it crush you again. Just yes. lower the voices. And Oliver Reed couldn't do that, unfortunately. Although I do feel like he was getting there. Like if so someone hadn't baited him in the bar, if you had the right people around him, you know, because I feel like Russell Crowe was at a point where he was like, oh, shit. I mean, I've been raising hell recently. Maybe I should not become the next Oliver Reed. And he's not become the next Oliver Reed, thank God. Because Yeah, he's he actually spirited away. Yeah, he's he's calm now. Recently played Zeus. And he was fucking hilarious because you've got Russell Crowe trying to do a Greek accent. And it's <laughs> fucking hilarious. <laughs> so uh, At least it's not Troy where they did British accents for the Greeks. Oh, yeah, that's funny. Like, And, and you've, got, you've got Troy, everyone doing British accents. And then you've got um, bloody... Uh, what's his name playing oh, the, the a guy from Game of Thrones, Sean Bean. You've got him trying to, oh, I have to do a British accent, a posh British accent. British accent. Oh, Jesus, I can only do Yorkshire. Well, <laughs> uh, uh, get the men back in line. It's like that was the best he could do. It was really funny. But yeah, I, I think it's sad, but a lot of it is like him being swept along with the addiction, not necessarily making choices, sometimes making choices, but not always. My guy, on the other hand, I feel like made all of these choices. And the 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 kind of the spectrum of stupidity in this one is so fucking wild that nobody could really have seen it coming. This guy was an an idiot, an idiot in multiple categories. He was a heptathlon idiot. So, uh, <laughs> so many different points of stupidity it's brilliant that's insane okay that's i'm excited insane. who we got here so let me tell you the story of john stonehouse from up-and-coming politician to persona non grata in the british political scene uh there's a recent um series made by itv i doubt anyone in america is going to be able to get hold of it it's on a streaming service called itvx which if you guys have VPNs, I'm not encouraging you to break the law, but you can probably watch it on uh, ITVX. It's kind of a very tongue-in-cheek retelling of the life of John Stonehouse starring Matthew McFadden, who's currently in Succession. He's, oh, okay. um, yeah, he's the, the, the husband of Shiv? Shiv. Yeah. yeah, he's Shiv's yeah. husband. So he's he also John's, in that movie. He's, or show. Yeah. That show, yeah, that show is amazing, by the way. If you haven't watched Succession, watch it. It is brilliant. Uh, so, yeah, Matthew McFadden plays John Stonehouse. Very tongue-in-cheek, but it's because it's quite light and, oh, my God, this guy's really stupid. It's really <laughs> not that removed from the truth. I've got to be honest. So, um, I also need to give credit for this one to my local newspaper, The Express and Star in the West Midlands, for this incredibly well-researched and written piece about a local MP. I read like autobiographies about this guy and like major national newspapers stories about this guy. None of them came close to this local newspaper with a circulation of like a million people. Well, well done to the Express and Star. This is an excellent um, kind of biography of this guy. So let me start. In February 1957, John Stonehouse, the most infamous black country politician to ever live, took his first steps into Parliament as an MP. A canny political operator with a fierce ambition, Stonehouse seemed destined for the top. It was not a stretch for him to be labelled as a future prime minister. That's how good this guy was. And how, like, he was a young, handsome war veteran working for a left-wing um, political party like the Labour Party. That's, like, that's rare. Right it's going to take off like a rocket. 
Exactly. And boy, that rocket did not work properly. Um, <laughs> two decades later, he was a national disgrace. Let's examine why. Born into a political family, his mother, a former mayor and councillor in Southampton, and his father, a trade unionist, Stonehouse moved into politics age 16 when he joined the Labour Party, which is, um, I guess you could say in this country, it's the, our version of the Democrats, but um, it's kind of very different. It's it, it called Labour for a reason. It was started by trade unionists in the like, okay. 1930s. So it is founded by very socialist uh, political movements. It's moved a lot a long way away it's more center now than it was left but like it, it was certainly at one point in time it was um a very left-wing government and certainly at this time as well and he was um, you could do that when you're 16 there oh yeah you can join like you, there are there are like young labor parties and okay. young conservatives okay. and stuff so you can join yeah. at like i guess like 13 14 and you can like campaign or be part of like the internship and like maybe help like with social media campaigns and stuff and it's it's just a, I hate to say recruiting is a way that they recruit people who are like-minded to their party at a young age and say hey this is the way politics work and they kind of prepare them for a potential career in politics to a certain extent like oh this person's got something about them maybe we support them and they could eventually become a huge part of the party down the line it's smart it's not always great because it means that you kind of get a bit of cronyism creeping in and nepotism. Like, oh, my son's going to be part of the party now. You know, it's it's scary. I got you. Yeah. Um, so he was educated at the London School of Economics, which is like the foremost economics university in the UK. It's like the number one. It's got international students from all across the world. I've been to the campus. It is stunning. It's really, really amazing. I'm yeah, uh, the London School of Economics is is really kind of amazing. Uh, John Stonehouse gained a particularly uh, gained a particular interest in third world countries, managing the African Cooperative Society in Uganda between 1952 and 1954. The former RAF pilot who served from 1944 to 1946 tried unsuccessfully to become an MP in 1950 in the seat in Twickenham, and 1951 in Burton. He, but he was elected to the now defunct ward of Wensbury, which is actually around the corner from me in the West Midlands of England and where my wife's cousin lives at the moment in Wensbury. So it's really close to home, this story for me. Um, in 1957, as an MP for the Labour Cooperative Party, um, that's when he got in uh, with Wensbury. He was 32 years old. That's really young for a politician at the time because back in the 50s, these people were utter fucking dinosaurs they were 70 80 year old men anyone under 50 was basically considered a whippersnapper in, feels in like we're doing that again over here pretty much yeah um toasterzoids here sorry i'm late also lev your hair looks like it's painted on i swear i'm not a lego figure i swear <laughs> look it's just behind my ears look there you go look it's real i promise um <laughs> Uh, welcome, Toasty. It's good to have you around, man. Uh, so uh, within two years, uh, sorry, I should go back here. So he was elected to Wensbury in 1957. He was 32. Um, within two years, he was expelled from Rhodesia, which I, I guess, like, is that now? Is that still a country? I feel like that might be part of South Africa or something. Um, I, yeah, I don't oh, want no, to... Zimbabwe. It might be Zimbabwe, actually. I'm sorry. 
Um, All of those changed a lot during that period. Yeah. Oh well, from then the, till the now. kind of the decolonialization of of the the British Empire, like the, a lot of names changed. Um, he, so he was expelled from Rhodesia after criticizing the white minority government for Southern Rhodesia and encouraging black residents to stand up for their rights. Fucking good for him. Yeah, absolutely. That... He was anti-apartheid in a country that you know was you know years away from expelling like white minority rule so that, that good for him i, I really like that it sounds of, sounds like a good guy so far sounds like a good guy he's part of a labor movement he's looking out for the the you know working people he's looking out for rights of minority well majorities actually in this case and trying to encourage them to have equal shares of things i think that's that's commendable um his stance uh, so his knowledge of third world countries would prove crucial when he wanted to expand his income his stance on ethnic minorities won him good support back home as his career began to take off. But before uh, Stonehouse, who boasted an IQ of 140, this guy was like a literal genius, um, although not so much when we'll see later, uh, got his <laughs> first big break as a junior minister in 1964. His head had already been turned. It was during this time that it's claimed, and it's almost like it's like 99% certain, that he started spying for communist Czechoslovakia, a country, oh yeah, he was a spy, a country that had been occupied throughout the Second World War by Nazi Germany and became part of uh, the Soviet Union's Eastern Bloc when Europe was divided up after 1945. Very Soviet-leaning country, um, Czechoslovakia before, which is now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, two different countries. Um, this is an unbelievable way. This is a man who has an IQ of 140, man of the world. Oh my goodness. <laughs> sorry. The family Robinsons. Oh, the, uh, sorry, the Wilsons. I, did I call you the family Robinsons? I apologize. The Wilsons are here. Familiar Wilsons Media. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really, really pleased you guys could listen to this. This is so good. Oh, I, I love I love this family so much. Welcome, guys. I hope you enjoy the rest of this. Yes, they are always spies. It's fucking crazy. So <laughs> this guy has an IQ of 140. He's a veteran of the political scene. He has uh, a lot of experience in business and third world. You know, he's an ex he's a smart guy, right? Experienced in the world. You want to know how he got caught and how he, they turned him into a spy? The fucking yes. plane lands on the tarmac in Czechoslovakia, in Prague. And he's greeted by his government-appointed attache, who is a tall, leggy, blonde woman. Oh, and they honey-potted him. They literally, yeah, <laughs> the most basic fucking spy tactic in the playbook. Like, and she's like, welcome to Prague. Welcome to Czechoslovakia. Oh, you're, you're quite handsome, aren't you? And he's like, yeah, I am. Do you want to have sex? Um, so his blonde attache suddenly shows an interest in him. They have sex in a room that's surrounded by locked glass cabinets. That are reflective and you can't see into them. And what, what the fuck was he thinking? He's filmed wow. behind a glass door. They've got um, enough to blackmail him and ruin his career and his life because, like, extramarital affairs with like a foreign spy at the time. That's your life done. You're probably going to prison for treason at that point. Um, so they they blackmailed him into being a spy. I don't know how you don't see that coming a mile away when you've got an IQ of 140 allegedly, but yeah. Fucking yeah, his, hell. Blood, his brain, his blood was in a different part, not yeah. in his brain. He, he got off the plane and immediately his brain just went. <sighs> these, sorry, these days they would, uh, it would be a video on OnlyFans. I, I completely agree. Like, At least he'd get I, some monetization out of it. He, yeah, he would. He would make a little bit of money out of it. And actually, you know what? He'd probably become prime minister. 
I mean, fucking... <laughs> let's be honest, the last couple of leaders the UK and the US have had, like, sex scandals kind of helped them a little bit somehow. Yeah. Amazingly. Uh, also, Tosazoi's point here, the reason he did it, he was horny. Uh, it's that simple. Quite right, Toasty. Um, so it is alleged he was paid £5,000, the equivalent of nearly £71,000 in today's money for crucial information on Britain's planes and future aviation plans because he'd just been appointed as like uh, head of aviation or something. Bloody well would be in Congress. Yeah, he would definitely be. He'd be so popular with Republicans. Holy I think shit. it's a selling point these days. I think. It is. I had a sex scandal. Have you seen my sex tape? I should be in. I should be in Congress. Um, so yeah, he was. He was paid seventy-one thousand pounds in today's money, which like it doesn't sound like a lot, but like seventy-one thousand pounds, or, or like well, let's say five thousand pounds back then. That's like it's like six big houses in the UK at the time in the nineteen sixties. That's a lot of money. So you know he yeah, could have used a that for a lot of things. Yeah, um, and also the interesting thing is he was kind of a shit spy. I just want to point this out now, right? He would go to them like, oh, I went on a trip and I went to Coventry and I saw the cathedral and it was really nice and we're developing this new bus and it's really like, John, we don't give a shit about that. Can you give us some good stuff, please? And he <laughs> oh, oh, you want the good stuff? Okay, well, I got on a plane and I had a very nice cocktail and it was, oh, for fuck's sake, this guy's useless. Um, <laughs> genuinely one of the worst like spies ever who's completely ineffectual other than one thing. He played a big part in the development and implementation of Concorde, the supersonic luxury jet that could fly from London to New York in three hours. And you know that he spilled his guts about the technology used in the Rolls-Royce engines for that fucking thing. Really? So, yes. Did they do anything with it, though? They they improved the efficiency of their um, like the hypersonic jets yeah. as a result of the information that he leaked. So he essentially brought like any kind of um soviet uh, aircraft they they got an, an incremental boost based on the information that this fucking idiot gave him why did you make him sound like a german in austin powers because he's kind of a cartoon character this guy that's the way i heard it yeah like, ah, i'm sorry <laughs> i didn't mean to make him german it's just one of the voices i do so anyway <laughs> he's now spying for the checks um, back within the Labour Party, the promotions continued to come. You know, he was made state of uh, Minister of State of Technology in 1967. A year later, he was made Postmaster General, which is like quite an important position. You're head of the Postal Service in the entire country. Um, Seems like a weird jump from technology to post office. It is, but actually, he got it. He got the job because he proposed something completely revolutionary, and actually, it's still with us to this day. So he was given the postmaster general position and he was the last man to ever hold the title because after some of the changes he made, didn't need a postmaster general anymore. So you save the, the government a little bit of money. During his tenure, he introduced the first and second class mail system, which meant your letters took longer to get to where they were going. So if you, so if you post something first class in the UK, you're paying a pound for a stamp and it gets there within like two or three days. Okay. Um, no matter where it is in the country. If you post it second class, it's going to take a week, but you only pay like 33p for a stamp. So I see. You can get a lot more stamps for your money. It takes longer. But really at the time, like if you're writing a letter to your mother and stuff, you, you don't necessarily need it there the next day. Well, and you, you can save letters? a lot of money. Just, yeah. <laughs> I, used, I used to... I used to... No, sorry. I used to buy books of second class, second class stamps. I used to spend like 10 pounds 
And like that would be me set for the year. Like I didn't have to worry about postage if I was sending stuff off to companies or family or friends or whatever it was. Because I used to write a lot of letters and a lot of people did back then. So, yeah. Well, this yeah. was what the we're in the 50s, 60s, 60s, now? late 60s okay. now. So a lot of people are still writing letters, they're still typing stuff. And actually having a second postal service that is good for kind of people who don't quite have the money to afford like a first class stamp, then. I really like this idea, and as a result of this, the post the post office became massively financially successful and became like a completely automated structure. Almost, they would the money just kept rolling in, so they didn't need a postmaster general to manage it anymore. He was the last man to have it. So this guy introduced second class stamps. It's a huge cultural touchstone in this country. Well done. They still use them every year for Christmas. Like, so, everyone gets a second class card from me. Mostly good. Kind of was a spy. Kinda was a shit spy who who like immediately took he like immediately oh cheese giant trap fuck it I'll have the cheese <laughs> um, so yeah the same year he was appointed to this is a big one as well he was appointed to the Privy Council a body of advisors to the Queen there was a fucking Soviet spy in the Queen's direct sphere of influence who sat next to her in meetings oh if, boy if the fucking Russians had wanted to. They could have told this guy to kill her and he'd have had to do it because he is a trained military man. He could have killed her. Oh, man. So that's, that's really very close dark. call. I know. In, uh, however, it all goes a little bit pear-shaped. In 1969, Joseph Frolic, an ex-Czech spy who had defected to the US, claimed that Stonehouse was being paid by the Czechs. The MP was left fighting for his career but remained calm under questioning by MI5's infamous Cold War officer, Charles Elwell, in the presence of Prime Minister Harold Wilson. The fucking PM was in the room like, John, tell us the truth. Uh, uh, no, no, it wasn't me. He was questioned twice <laughs> and extensively so, but denied all the allegations very calmly, actually. But his reprieve was short-lived. Here comes the fucking snowball effect. You've already got one scandal. And it just like goes and goes from there. We've got Tosoid saying he, he'd been caught with the old um, stick and string uh, sorry, the you've been caught with the old stick and string, string hooked up to a cardboard box. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like literally, like the most basic fucking way he could be caught. He was caught. Um, yeah. So um, the snowball effect. When Labour lost the 1970 election to Edward Heath's Conservative Party, Stonehouse had an almighty uh, falling out with Wilson. He was booted out of the shadow cabinet and lost all of the extra money that came with being a shadow minister. You get a basic pay as a uh, an MP at the time, which these days is a lot of money. Like they get 150,000 pounds. But if you're a member of it, I know, they get so much money. And they get to claim expenses. They get to claim it's 250,000 pounds a year in expenses, which includes rent and food and shit. So, Why do you need to make a whole bunch of money if all your shit's free? I still don't I understand that. And that's the, oh. Don't get me started on MPs these days. They are <laughs> fucking coddled. Uh, so you get more money as uh, a minister because obviously you're doing more work, so that makes sense. But um, he lost that, and um, he was booted out of the shadow cabinet, and he decided to put his economics degree to good use and turn to the business world. Um, he set up several businesses across the globe, including an investment bank in Bangladesh, uh, but these all failed spectacularly. The, he, was, uh -oh. he was like the George Bush Jr., of fucking starting companies like oh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do the voice again i'm gonna drill holes in the desert and i'm gonna you do it using bin laden's money i'm gonna take <laughs> bin laden money and i'm gonna drill a bunch of holes in the desert that don't have anything 
that's my George Bush. That was terrible. I'm sorry. My, my it was a valiant open. attempt. Uh, it was terrible. Uh, so he was, uh, because all his businesses failed, he was left with debts. I can't believe this amount of money. Rumored to be £800,000, more than £10 million in modern money. This is one man working as a, folly, a fucking politician, and he's racked up £10 million in debt. I feel like he just opened himself up to being uh, even more entrenched as a spy. Do you need another more spy information? Yeah, I can give you more stuff. Uh, with Wilson clinging to power uh, the leader, as the Labour leader, um, Stonehouse's hopes of a glittering political career were blocked. It makes me question the London School of Economics around this time. If this doofus managed to get a fucking degree, but somehow ended up £10 million in debt, what are they teaching there? Uh, it, to be fair, he could have paid for his way through school. You could uh, pay yeah, people to do your papers. Like his, I mean, I know he's like his family are politicians and they're left wing, but yeah, he could have paid his way through that. Uh, just make him George Bush sound like Rockefeller. They might as well be the same person. I feel like Rockefeller was much smarter than George Bush. Uh, I feel like George was Bush brilliant. was confused a lot more than Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockefeller, even as a ninety-year-old, was not confused. Bush, as a forty-year-old, was fucking away. Gone. I just I just watched a, a video of George Bush coming out and talking about uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine, where he gaffs and calls it Iraq instead of Ukraine. But so dude bad. comes out to the podium. His hair looks like he just woke up. His suit's too big. I'm like, dude, is he drunk right now? Yeah, it's but, the cocaine. Sorry. If you no, get a no, chance I... to see it, George W. Bush talking and saying Iraq instead of Ukraine, where he's like, this guy's choice to brutally invade Iraq. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. And I hate Donald Trump. I genuinely hate him. But there is a part of him that is slightly sharp, somewhat intelligent. There is some cunning there, slightly. George Bush had fucking nothing. He no. was a complete sheet of wallpaper. Like he just had nothing about him whatsoever. How he, he got to that position. Great comedic content. Oh yeah. Like Will Ferrell established his run as George Bush, <laughs> I swear to God. Anyway, so back to John Stonehouse. So Stonehouse got creative now that he's £10 million a day. He probably should have done that before he got in debt. But anyway, um, he used the signature of his secretary turned lover, Sheila Buckley, to forge documents and listed her as a director on the majority of the company. It's not my debt, it's hers. Under um, the bus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Darling. Um, now that we've finished the coitus, would you sign on and be a director in this failed company? Um, he knew that this was a temporary fix and began plotting his estate, his escape. What could that be? Declaring bankruptcy? No. Finding some new investors? No. Sell your company? No. He decided to fake his fucking death. As you do. As you do in this situation. John Stonehouse <laughs> was like, yeah, that seems to work for me. So in a method, so he took his secretary secretary slash lover to the cinema and they watched the day of the jackal at the cinema which is a it's a classic it was remade with bruce willis and richard gear i think but like the original day of the jackal that is a fucking good spy film oh my god at the cinema and there's a, there's a scene at the start where edward fox who plays the jackal goes to a, a graveyard finds the a grave of a child that died like after I don't know, being alive for a month or something like that, goes to the record offices, asks for the details of this deceased constituent of this ward, 
and then just fakes a bunch of documents with that, and it works completely because the registration people don't talk to the deaths people and vice versa. They're just like, we've got too much work. We're not going to check for fraud. Fuck it. This person's probably who they say they are. They've got a birth certificate. So <laughs> the birth certificate was given to them by the deaths department who thought they were doing research, but actually he just went away and photocopied it. So, nice. you know, and yeah, exactly. I feel like back in the day, you could get away with a lot of shit before the internet. So much. Like, and, and modern technology is a curse and a blessing, but I've got to be honest, I, I think it's much harder to fake uh, uh, an identity now as oh, compared yeah. to like how it was back then. Like they, they demonstrated it in the day of the jackal. And that's literally just what Stonehouse did. He walked, he found, I'll, I'll go through it now. He spent months planning this like uh, fake death thing. And on November the 20th, 1974, with a center parting and thick spectacles, nice disguise, uh, <laughs> he's a bit like me, shit. Um, he left a pile of clothes on Miami Beach and vanished. He flew to Australia, assumed another new identity. Um, sorry, that of, um, so he'd, he faked another identity to get to Miami. And okay. then he faked, he made another fake identity based oh, off. Yeah. He was Russian, Russian dolling it. Um, <laughs> he made another d- identity based on a dead constituency. He went to this poor guy's funeral and stole his identity. He met his wife, spoke to her and then just went away and stole like her, his fucking identity. Yeah. Went in the guy's house. Up. That is really messed up. Clive Although when you Mildoon. said he left a pile of clothes, I was like, dude, did he try to pretend he got raptured? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the clothes. And, and actually, that's a really interesting thing because it's it's Miami Beach, so it's really busy. So he did have to like um, leave his clothes there, swim out to shore, uh, swim out to sea, sorry, and then like kind of swim a bit further down the coast and get out. Uh, oh, yeah, like, okay, he's faking his death. Beach. I forgot. Yeah. So, okay. so yeah, I mean, it was funny if he was like, "I've been, I've been raptured." We think he's been raptured. There was a bunch of sand <laughs> around, and maybe he was raptured. But uh, yeah, he essentially did that, and there was a bunch of coverage about it in the media because, like, someone from the hotel, because the the hotel was there and the beach was like right in front, so like he came out, saw like a bunch of stuff, and there was a bunch of ideas like really suspiciously placed, like, "Oh, and here's a, a passport, and here's a, you know, like a bunch of ident and identifying stuff." Right. Uh, that led everyone to, oh my God, John Stonehouse is dead. Um, so um, a lot of people pointed out that he couldn't, like, no no one found the body for weeks, but Miami Beach um, has an inward tide. So his body should have washed up on the beach like within three days or something, but it right. didn't. And that immediately people were like, that's really suspicious. Like it, he wouldn't have drowned and sunk to the bottom of the sea. It would have washed up on the shore. Yeah, maybe he would have been shark. Yeah, but like bits of him, like pedoed the whale. Yes, he's in a whale. That's what it is. (laughs) He's inside a fucking whale. Oh my god. So anyway, so he's faked his death. People are already a little suspicious, but they're accepting that this guy's gone on holiday and drowned, and he had he claimed he had a business trip, but no one could find records of it. Anyway, no one questioned it. It's a tragedy, right? Meanwhile. Clive Muldoon, Mildoon, as he's now known, uh, rendezvoused with a secretary, Miss Buckley, of course, his lover. And uh, they went off to Australia with no idea about his affair. Stonehouse's wife presumed he committed suicide. And so did most of the other people in the political sphere as well. Um, and would make sense. It would, especially if like his debts were well known and the spying allegations. Like It makes sense. 
Um, and with inflation headed towards 26% and unemployment set at a 30-year high, um, Wilson, who was prime minister again, had no time to sweat over the missing Stonehouse. So they were just like, we'll accept it. It's fine. We've got other shit to deal with right now, uh, which you know sounds very familiar, rising unemployment, inflation. Clive Mildoon is the most Hanna-Barbera name ever. I completely <laughs> agree with you. That is such a good point. Uh, the familiar Wilsons that, yeah, it's Clive Mildoon. It does sound vaguely Scottish as well. Anyway, so around about this time, there's something else going on, which is kind of um, a bit of a problem for him. After a ceremonial service was held in the House of Commons, uh, that was that. They were just like, 10 bell salute. Let's move on with our lives. Stonehouse was gone, but another famous disappearance scuppered his plans. Um, Lord Lucan who famously went missing, had gone missing two weeks before Stonehouse on November the 7th. Uh, his wasn't planned. This is kind of crazy. November the 7th, Lord Lucan, the night, um, that night, the nanny of his children, Sandra Rivett, was bludgeoned to death at his former family home. Lord Lucan was, uh, sorry, Lady Lucan, his wife, was also attacked. Lucan, who was assumed to be the perpetrator, I mean, yeah, it was him, right? Nobody else, no sign of a struggle, no break-in, yeah. It was an incredibly high-profile figure in the UK at the time, known for, like, incredibly lavish lifestyle, parties, gambling, expensive tastes. Um, and the interest in finding Lord Lucan and bringing him to justice was international. Um, two high-profile British idiot politicians had the same fucking idea in the same two-week window. Incidentally... Although Stonehouse, you'll find out, they never found Lord Lucan, and it became a continuous mystery from that point on. Well, he had to stay hidden because he killed people. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, like, you know, old Clive Muldoon, John Stonehouse over here, he's been caught in a honey trap and spied. Yes, that's treason. They're not going to kill him over it, not anymore. And, like, okay, yeah, he's made a bunch of bad investments, and he's banging his secretary. This isn't like capital punishment offences, whereas like Lord Lucan would probably have been hanged for that, I would yeah. think, probably at that time. Um, anyway, Maybe it was so, brilliant that he did it at the same time. I don't know, yeah. Actually, yeah, it's like, no, nobody would be stupid enough to do exactly the same thing as this <laughs> other guy, right? Although like, I feel like Stonehouse had been planning his for months, and Lord Lucan was like, shit, I've got to get the fuck out of here, and just ran, you know, yeah. and they never found him, so... Um, I, interestingly, uh, we mentioned Rhodesia earlier on. There were rumors a few years ago. Lord Lucan's probably long dead by now because he was in his 50s when this happened in like the 1960s. Um, Lord Lucan was rumored to be living in Zimbabwe, so which was previously Rhodesia. So that's a really interesting coincidence because there's a picture of like this old white British man that nobody knew staying at a lodge in the light. Is that Lord Lucan? Looks a bit like him. Hmm. Um, yeah. So when police in Melbourne, hmm were tipped off about a handsome, well-spoken Englishman shuttling large sums of money into a bank account from abroad. Alarm bells started ringing. Lord Lucan's missing. It's got international attention. Suddenly, this handsome, debonair British man is shoveling money into bank accounts. The police were like, this is fucking suspicious as hell. Anyway, <laughs> the police raided the man's address and forced him to pull down his trousers. What? This is where it gets weird. Did he um, have a tattooed penis as well? <laughs> I got a tattoo on my penis on my penis. Um, Lord Lucan a fame, apparently had a six-inch scar on the inside of his right thigh. 
I don't know, maybe I don't know how you would get that, but that's like that's a really fucking dangerous place to have a skull. Anyway, so like, hey, Clive Muldoon, get your kecks down. And uh, there was no scar, and the well-spoken Englishman was not Lord Lucan, but he was John Stonehouse, who everyone thought was dead. Um, I know. He was arrested and interviewed, and his story quickly began to unravel as police discovered he'd entered the country on a false passport. No shit. Seen it in a movie. It's really <laughs> bad. Um, soon he was up in court where his real identity was exposed, but Stonehouse sought asylum in Sweden, which is kind of random, and Mauritius, as Britain fought for six months to have him extradited. Even when he returned to the UK, he had no intention of resigning as a member of parliament. And a Labour government that was clinging on to power faced the prospect of letting the Conservatives in if he was sacked. So they had a really thin majority right now, like one or two seats. And if they sacked him, it becomes level. So So he tried to keep his job in parliament after he He refused to resign. (laughs) Don't you automatically lose it when you die? Nope. Honest system. No, huh. yeah, we've got to do the man thing and resign. He's like, nah, fuck it. Don't really feel like it. Ah, am I going? Am I going to fake my death again? Fuck it. I'm not going uh, anywhere. Wow. Amazing. Um, he was a man who had faked his own death, and get this, because obviously he faked his own death, he was in prison in Brixton, which is like a category A prison. That is some serious. That's like fucking supermax over in this oh. country. But he remained an MP for Walsall North. Which was uh, which had been consumed by Wensbury in 1974. He was sent to prison, uh, but he kept his job as a politician. How do you serve your constituents, the people of, that you're supposed to be doing, when you're 200 miles away in one of the most dangerous prisons in Europe? Yeah, this is where they house terrorists, Brixton. I never knew that though that you could just yeah. stay working in politics as a it's, criminal. I mean, it, it makes sense. Great. Yeah, the public sector in the UK. So like the NHS, uh, politicians, stuff like that. Um, It's very difficult to get rid of people. You can't just sack them. Because of unionization, you have to go through like a really, really long constructive, uh, constructive, um, what's the word for it? There's a word for it, constructive dismissal. It's really difficult to do. So you have to do really, really bad things. Like if you're in like hospitals, you're working in the NHS, you have to have deliberately killed several people. Before oh you lose your job. And even then, like, there's going to be a few people trying to stop that from happening. So the UK, it's, I mean, it's good in a way because you can't just randomly sack someone because, like, you want to cut your costs. But at the same right. time, some people in the NHS and in politics have hung on to their jobs because they could not be sacked. It's fucked up. Yeah. So, yeah, that's not the way to go. That, that really, yeah, that's not good. That's That's too much power. And it's still a problem to this day where like people are fighting like being sacked as like medical professionals even after they've killed people like and admitted it's crazy you'd think that somebody'd be like hey we should fix that we should probably fix that oh they've tried but uh it will will never change um so yeah but um hey we can't strike anymore so you know there's that um anyway (laughs) so um he was sent to prison and he kept his job he was released from prison on bail in August 1975, so like a few months later, a brazen Stonehouse gave a speech in the House of Commons two months later. He vehemently denied being a Czech spy, as he had six years previously, and blamed a mental breakdown for for faking his own death. Sorry, for attempting to fake his own death because he, he didn't fake it. Um, he declared, 
I assumed a new parallel personality that took over for, uh, took over from me, which was foreign to me and which despised the humbug and sham of the past years of my public life. Bullshit, mate. Sounds like a really Sorry. fancy way to say he had a slim shady side. Yeah, I've got this other voice in my head and it tells me to do terrible things like fuck random Czech spies and no, not, <laughs> not buying it. Not buying it. You're just an idiot. Um, on April the 7th, 1976, he finally resigned the Labour Party whip, which is what they call like, oh, I've given up the whip. I don't fully understand it, but that's what they call it. Um, around the same time, his trial for charges of fraud, theft, forgery, conspiracy to defraud, causing a false police investigation and, and wasting police time got underway man stacking it's it not, up yeah they He's really like, want to get this piling on yeah you ain't getting <laughs> out of this one you get, we're gonna get you on one of them we're gonna capone the shit out of you uh refusing a lawyer and representing himself uh, you're not a fucking lawyer john you're not even a fucking businessman or politician stonehouse's trial lasted 68 days that's longer than most film shoots jeez he's like that's yeah true. Two fucking that's months. a long trial for people that uh, that, that nobody's dead. Yeah, well, that's I mean, a long trial where there's no. That's a long trial where there's like no evidence. There's a shit ton of evidence, and he's admitted to it. Why did it last two months? That's a lot of money wasted right there. On August the sixth, nineteen seventy six, he was found guilty of eighteen counts of fraud, deception, and theft, and jailed for seven years. He was locked up in Wormwood Scrubs, which is a fucking shithole of a prison. It sounds um, like it just from the name. It's it's horrible. Uh, it's a. Cr I mean, even now, even back then, it was like a crumbling Victorian hellhole with rats and fucking <laughs> ants and shit everywhere. Like oh, it was horrible. They cut. They have this thing in Victorian prisons because none of them have toilets in the cells. They have this thing called slopping out. So you are given your own bucket and you poo and pee no. in that. And every morning you take it out and you yeah that that shit happened until like the the riots at Wormwood Scrubs in the 1990s which were partially uh started by Charles Bronson so thanks thanks Charles every yeah. prisoner in the UK now gets a fucking toilet thank god um <laughs> it's so crazy um 11 days after his conviction i can see how that can be uh, a what's that a disaster yeah like having to shit in a bucket that ain't good no. um so um, he's he represents himself, gets sent to prison um, uh, for seven years. Eleven days after his conviction on August seventeenth, Stonehouse resigned as a member of the Privy Council. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Your Highness, I can no longer serve you as as someone who can advise the Queen because I'm currently residing in the biggest shithole in the UK. Um, because he's <laughs> only one of three people in the history of the UK to voluntarily give up the right honourable title. Ten days later, he finally resigned as an MP after he was sent to prison. He tried to appeal five of his convictions in 1977, but the House of Lords weren't having any of that. They're like, no, just fucking go away, please. Um, on October, uh, sorry, August the 14th, 1979, Stonehouse was released from prison early for good behavior. He'd served three years of his seven. That's kind of early. In the yeah. UK, you, you serve half your sentence no matter what, like you, you, you do half your sentence and then you're released and you're on bet, you're on what's the word probation um, out in the community. And if you fuck up, you go back to prison for the entire time. Uh, that happens automatically. Like everyone says half their sentence, unless you are sentenced to more than nine years. And then you have to do two thirds of your sentence. And if you are one of the rare people who gets 
uh, a life sentence. Well, actually, that's no, not that rare. That automatic life sentences for murder. Um, so anyone who's convicted of murder will get like a, a minimum sentence of 19 years, and they have to do all of that before they can consider considered for release. Right. If someone is given a whole life tariff for like really serious murders, like they they've wiped out like someone's family or something, you know, um, they're never getting out. They're going to be living in high category shitholes for the rest of their days. That's really rare. There's like maybe I think probably like a couple of dozen in the UK that have got like you're never getting out ever. So right, yeah. I think but, you just talked about one of those people. Yeah. Um, who are we talking about? Wasn't well, Bronson like, in there for Bron Bronson? Well, actually, no. Bronson had numerous small terms because he did like armed robbery, where he like walked into a chippy with like a really a chip shop with like a knife. And he made away with like a tenner or something, and they sent him to prison for like I think it was two years. But because he kept on like <laughs> killing people in prison and starting riots and attacking prison guards, and like he just never ever really got out of prison because he was just okay. committing more and more crimes in prison and became the most feared man in the UK as a result. He did eventually get out, but then he, he you know sent back again because he's a psychopath. Um, but yeah, so three years out of the seven. Um, however, while inside, he had suffered three heart attacks, Ooh. undergone open heart surgery, and his wife divorced him. No shit. But three yeah. heart attacks. <laughs> yeah, that's one heart attack per year he was in prison. So I'm kind of not surprised that they released him. That like, would make sense. Like, yeah. You know, what's he going to do? Like, he's better. After three heart attacks, especially in the 70s. The healthcare wasn't there for people recovering from heart issues. It was like you you don't have long to live. So I guess it might have been a compassionate thing as well, especially if uh, the prison has a twelve year old. That's, that's that's what that's weird. Toast I don't aside. understand. I I don't get that. Sorry, I don't understand it. Um. So anyway, he's had three heart attacks. He's out of prison now, but he's uh, still alive. And um, he married his former secretary, Miss Buckley, um, okay. soon to be Miss Stonehouse. In September 1980, Margaret Thatcher and her conservative government learned from a second Czech defector about Stonehouse's spying. With insufficient evidence and the defector declining to appear in court, the government just kept quiet, which is interesting. But like, that's like, yeah, there's no doubt at this point he was a spy. He was a shit one, but he was a spy. So Stonehouse remained in the public eye and even returned to politics. He made several oh radio and TV appearances discussing his disappearance and joined the Social Democratic Party, which lasted for like five fucking minutes. It was a very <laughs> short-lived political party. He also set up a small firm manufacturing electronic hotel safes. Oh, the irony. Okay. Yeah, huh. the, man, the man who <laughs> forged and fucking stole and all of that shit. He's making safes now. Um, she still married him after he threw her ass under the bus, too. That's pretty yeah. neat. Yeah. Exactly, but they they were like like you watch the documentary. There's the genuine love there, but like he's he's a weird guy, you know. Uh, but he did seem to genuinely love his secretary and wanted the best for her. But very very weird situation. He expected his wife to just be okay with everything. Yeah, you know, that's, that's not how it works. No. <laughs> um, so Stonehouse collapsed in Birmingham while appearing on Central Live. Uh, sorry, Central Live TV. Uh, to talk about missing people on the 25th of March, 1988. It was a day before I turned seven years old. Um, <laughs> he survived, but on April 14th, he was admitted to Southampton General Hospital after suffering his fourth heart attack 
age 62, was pronounced dead at 2.30 a.m. on April 14th, 1988. Thus ends the insane life of Jones, John Stonehouse slash Clive Muldoon. Um, <laughs> the, the man, he, he went from a 32-year-old politician with the world at his feet and then just made a series of catastrophic decisions that fucking ruined his life. And then they just kept getting more and more stupid and audacious as time went by. That's yeah. Stonehouse. What do you think? I feel, I feel like um, some of that stuff that seems ridiculous may have been on purpose if he did have yeah. that high of an IQ. Yeah. Um, you feel like, yeah. Dumb nonetheless, and, and extra points for having the balls to try to stay in politics while he was in prison. I know. Holy shit. Can you imagine if, I, I mean, it, it may or may not happen. Trump's found guilty of something. Imagine if he tries to do a comeback after that. Well, I feel I don't, like people I don't will still get behind him. But like, but how do you do that? Like, I can't even, well, I mean, people can't even vote when they're felons. That's true. But he's a very rich white man. So he will oh, find yeah. a way around it. Spongement and whatnot, I suppose. Yeah. Also, he has no self-awareness whatsoever. So he's like, ah, fuck it. Well, it's me. I, I didn't do anything wrong. Yes, we've proved it. No, I didn't. No. delude himself into it but yeah i can't believe this guy hung on for months after like being held in remand in a terrorist prison and then like going to actual prison this guy it's crazy he unsuccessfully faked his death yes after getting the idea from a movie while he was out with his mistress and then threw her (laughs) under the bus yeah that's yeah wow yeah it's amazing uh just because he was unsuccessful as a yeah. criminal mm-hmm. and a businessman, he is I'm obviously, uh, well, yeah, he got caught on that too. Mm. Uh, obviously, uh, an idiot, not mm. as successful of a fake death runaway as Lord Lucan. Um, no, he didn't have a scar, so that was good. Um, yeah. Gosh, super stupid, isn't it? I, I'm gonna have to to score him just because. He was way too smart to do such dumb shit. Uh, I'll go straight 80 for him. I I like that. Yeah, solid solid 80 for John Stonehouse, which is interesting because um, had he fucked up even more, he would have been a a success on our podcast. But uh, (laughs) he he fucked up massively in real life. Um, He was an unsuccessful politician, so there's kind of a bit of balance there. But I I love the story because I didn't know, like, this is kind of, 60s 70s british political stuff which is kind of like a bit of a a a gray area for me in terms of knowledge because like i i remember all the stuff from my time uh like in my lifetime so thatcherite stuff all the way up till the present day like very involved in that political thing because it's everywhere around us and obviously we learn about the second world war and the first world war and the political and like the depression and all the stuff in between so we learn about kind of the first half of the 20th century essentially in history and then a bunch of like older history your charles dickens you know going back to shakespeare and all, all of this stuff and all the history we learned about that there's a bit of a gray area in terms of politics from like the mid 50s until the late 70s because it, a, it was before i was born but also there was so much other stuff happening in culture in the uk and the world at the time you got the hippie movement and beatles and you know all these different things are happening and like people weren't really paying that much attention in in history lessons to like oh this man called john stonehouse faked his own death after fucking up his life and spying and throwing money away and stuff 
That would have made a really interesting history lesson. I never heard about him or this situation until I watched the TV drama on ITVX about that. So I think there's more that I don't know about most things than I mm. do know about anything. I've, I've cashed in my history lessons, uh, <laughs> especially uh, British history for the most mm. part, uh, UK stuff, most of Europe. I don't know shit about shit. I, I just kind of learn it as I go. <laughs> in, fa in fairness, like a lot of our history, um, like the European, British, kind of ancient slash older history. So kind of, you know, we're talking like Stonehenge right the way up to like, I guess like the 17th, 18th century, when like the kind of the declining influence of the European like continent became a thing. Um, I feel like that's like the period of people learn about castles and wars and all of that romantic shit and they kind of like after america kind of becomes this cultural hub and shapes the world and you know cities are being built as we're hearing rhapsody in blue playing in the background <laughs> and stuff like that kind of rise of america your recent history in the last 250 odd years it is so fucking interesting and like big and bright and bombastic and so varied that I can completely understand why a lot of people kind of do focus in America and around the world do focus on American history more than they might do on European history for that like window of 250 years, say for things like the wars and like some big moments like the Beatles or, or whatever it might be, you know, but there are some interesting bits. It's just finding the right ones because I, I've got to be honest, I'm like that as well. Like I find pockets of American history so much more interesting than like the decline of the British Empire. Like oh, it's so fucking dull. I yeah. swear to God. You know, speaking of the decline, I'm going to hint right now that mm. the next episode Ooh. is going to be covering a, a musician that has an amazing song called The Decline. Um, oh. That's I think it's like 14 minutes long, 20 minutes long, something like that. It's a punk rock song. And nice. that was my final song that I played on the radio uh, in the afternoons on oh, the, 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 the three o'clock punk. I put on the uh, the decline and let it play wow. in its entirety of just like 20 minutes straight on the radio of the same song. That's, that's and I'm covering that. Amazing. I I I, look, I really look forward to that. I do like the longer song. I, I it's funny. I recently found out, and we've mentioned this a lot. I think it's because they're releasing the fiftieth anniversary of Dark Side of the Moon. Um, I found out that my wife has never listened to Dark Side of the Moon. It's like really, I didn't know You're that was issued. It's like they issued it pretty much as part of <laughs> like they were like it's it's been in the top one hundred albums for the last thirty years. Here's your standard copy, you know. So. Um, Sorry, I don't know where I was going with that, but like longer length songs, like um, I, I have a real affinity for that. But also um, in my radio days, uh, Blue Monday was my go to uh, by New Order um, was my go to long song. It's eight and a half minutes long. Um, wow. And it's it's famously uh, because it was produced. Uh, they, the the album or the single sleeve is a floppy disk. And it cost oh, like wow. 30, 30p more to produce than they sold the record for. So they actually lost a shitload of money. And uh, they were like, oh, well, hopefully it won't be a big single. It was like number one for 10 weeks or something like that. They sold millions of copies of this fucking song. Oh, um, I know. So I used to put that song on when I needed to go and take a shit. Uh, yeah. So I would put that song on. I'd have a sting. 
of like a pre-recorded <laughs> like stations thing, and then I'd have a six-minute song on, so I could have a really luxuriant poo. You know, ah. I'd really take my time. See, you did yours for the the excitement. I kind of tried to go out uh, in the most punk way that I could by playing yeah. an eighteen-minute long. That's how long it is. Uh, track yeah. just because I wanted to annoy the GM. Yeah, there you go. Like, get your timings right now. Try and count down to the news at the top of the hour now. Uh, you had a poop playlist? Yeah, I had a poop playlist. You should see it now. It's like 10 times longer since I got Crohn's disease. Holy shit. I listen to documentaries while I'm like being unwell. Anyway, um, so that's our show. I really, really enjoyed this. I didn't know you were going to do Ollie Reed. I, re- I, I kind of, I do have a bit of a soft spot for Ollie Reed because he was in my. Um, he was in the the Musketeers films, and I fucking love those Dick Lester uh, Musketeers films. They're really, really beautiful and entertaining, and a lot of the guys do their own stunts, and it's just really good. So thank you for doing that. It was a real blast for the past from me. I was pretty excited to do it, and like the, when we got the suggestion in the messages on uh, Instagram, which, again, follow us on Instagram. You can talk straight to us. We're normal people. Yeah, please um, do. Yeah, at History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram. Also, sorry, sorry to quickly interrupt. Uh, the familiar Wilsons have got a suggestion. Papa was a Rolling Stone. Twelve minutes long. I was a DJ at a small college station. I didn't know that. That's another great poo song. There you go, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't know where I was going. I, I've yeah, you, off Thank it. you for the suggestion. Whoever sent yes. in the suggestion for Oliver yeah. Reed. Gosh, That's, I, um... now see. I got to look it up. Look at I'm actively <laughs> you go, you looking go and look up your up. message. I'll, I'll vamp. I'll vamp um so yeah I, I i genuinely did really like uh researching john stonehouse because there's some stuff they left out in the series that we didn't know about but um also oliver reed getting to hear about that that was that was really special man so who was that it that sent you? Link. it was uh sue yeah. sue healy so thank you sue, sue healy thank yeah. you sue that's that's really really wonderful and also like in terms of drinking capabilities I feel like Oliver Reed is up there with Andre the Giant, like really pushing him for like number one insane drinker of all time. He, you know? yeah, the the lists of alcohol that the man put down in single parties. Um, yeah, that rivals the king that ate himself to death. Yes, it does. The in terms of like absolute gluttony and an overindulgence, I think that's definitely up there. Uh, I'll never forget the the story of Andre the Giant who drank. What was it um a hundred beers and four crates of wine by himself one night and got so drunk in a hotel that he fell asleep on the floor in the lobby and <laughs> they couldn't wake him up they were they, they he had a pulse and he was breathing and snoring really loudly but they couldn't wake him up so that he'd go to his room so they took the cover off the piano and put that over andre the giant just got the guests to walk around him like, just ignore the seven foot man that's fallen asleep on the floor, please. He, yeah, I know his snores like an elephant. It's fine. So, um, <laughs> what's this? I, apparently, Tosazoid has suggested um, Akhenaten. Is that a, an Egyptian? Um, I can't even pronounce it, so I ain't doing it. Akhenaten? I, I feel like I've heard that. It's probably from your suggestion, Tosazoid. I'll look into that. Um, it, it, you, if you follow me on Instagram, um drop me a message and remind me about that because i, w- I will definitely need to research that and I, that, I, I do like the fact that it's an easy one we like when we get suggestions saves us a lot of time <laughs> saves us some stress uh but uh, anyone thank you so much it's um we'll we'll be um trying to make some improvements to the stream in the next season because we're working on some animation with some uh some folks the the familiar wilsons will know because uh you, one of your one of your boys 
is is working on the animation for us and there's, there's like there's 50 bucks waiting for him so all he has to, he's just got to finish it so um yeah i'm really looking forward to making some changes to the podcast hopefully we can grow please do share on social media and if you do want to follow us like derek said on social media you can go to at great uh, at history's greatest idiots on instagram or go to at greatest idiots on twitter or you can go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots and sling us some cash and we'll do stuff for you um excellent <laughs> familiar wilson's uh, i i oh, i love that you guys are here so much i love i love the wilson family they're behind my own they're my second favorite family right now these guys there's just a collective of loveliness it's wonderful um <laughs> so so thank you so much um derek would you like to say goodbye please goodbye everybody and we will see you again in a couple of weeks take care now bye